one, you can grab a seat. Good. Wow, wow. This is gonna be interactive and be a lot of fun. We'll see if you're still cheering in 30 minutes. Hey, welcome back to our Final Words series. Uh, this has been a really cool walk, and uh, as preachers, it's always really fun when what you're preaching on sort of uh, ties in with, we'll call it the spiritual calendar. And so, uh, as a preaching team, we've been in John for what we've called kind of an extended period of time. And for the last couple of years, we've, we've tried to sync it up, but it never quite worked with some of the other things that we needed to communicate and some of the other things that were on Jamie's heart. But this year it did, and so what we're getting to do, and this is what's so cool, is we're getting an opportunity to carry the narrative of John directly into the Easter season. And it's really exciting because you really get to pull a bunch of things together. And so this final word series has been walking us through some of Jesus' final words uh, here on earth. And that's a really exciting thing. He's got just five words left. And the two that I have today are the two words, I thirst. Uh, what's coming next, Jamie will preach on on Good Friday, which is it is finished. And so to kind of start this off, I got his permission, but I'm gonna tell you a story about our senior pastor. Uh, Jamie had shared with you a little bit last week about his mentor, and a man who'd had an incredible spiritual impact on him, Larry Crabb, and Larry had passed away just about a couple weeks ago. It's been almost three weeks now. And as he was walking through it, uh, Jamie had shared a story with me and kind of said, this is why this, this last words of I thirst were so meaningful to me. It had come out of a, a mentoring time with him and Larry, and Jamie had been sitting there and things were kind of tough and he looked at Larry and he said this, he said, Larry, I'm just so thirsty for more of God. And Larry, uh, I've spent some time with him and so I'll tell you, Larry, uh, he's a pretty intense guy. Like you sit with him and he has your full attention because you're not sure what's gonna happen next. And so as we were sitting there, Jamie kind of sat there and Larry kind of came in and, well, Jamie. And uh, Jamie has said he always had to prepare his heart for those times with Larry because he knew he was gonna get the truth and whether that pill was gonna be fun to swallow, uh, Larry wasn't real concerned with that. So Jamie tells him, I, I, I thirst for more of God. And Larry looked at him and he said something that was very impactful for our senior pastor. He looked at him, he said this, Jamie, have you ever thought that the thirst is the experience? Now, at first you kinda go, oh, okay, well that's clever. But it actually presses us into a place today where I intend to take us over the next 30 minutes. But here's what I want you to hear from me. Today's sermon is not going to come from a place of mastery. This is one of the hardest parts of my Christian walk. I don't do well when the Lord's response is, be still and know that I am God. This is really, really hard for me. Some people who have a gift of faith, they sit back and they do this. It's okay, I trust the process, God is good. That ain't me. <laughs> In fact, it's really, really hard for me to sit back at times. My wife will be the first to tell you, no, Rustin struggles when he's uncomfortable. And it's really challenging. Everything I will preach to you today is absolutely true. And it's absolutely difficult for me. So as long as you guys are okay with me preaching from an aspirational place, then let's tackle these last two words of Jesus, two of the last five, and let me pray for us as we get started. Uh, Lord, I come to you today having done this once already. I know what you're about to walk us through. I know what you've walked me through this week, even in preparation. The reality that here on earth, you've placed eternity in our hearts, and yet we don't live in an eternal place. Uh, Lord, as we come into this idea of thirsting, 
as we come into this idea of what it looks like for us to, to live thirsty. My prayer is just that you would prepare all of our hearts. This is gonna hit us in different places. Some of us are gifted for faith. Some of us really challenge when we have to trust you at high, high levels with really sacred things in our lives. And so my prayer is that you would prepare all of us for what it is that you wanna do. Remove me completely from the process. Speak through me. I'm here and I'm available. I pray this in your name. Amen. So let's take a look at John 19, verses 28 and 29. It says this, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now, right off the bat, I don't know about you guys, but a lot of times when I read the scriptures, I see a phrase and in my head, I kind of go, well, what does that mean? That doesn't necessarily even make sense circumstantially. So if you take a look at this first verse, verse 28, it says, after this, Jesus, but then this phrase right here caught my attention because it didn't make sense. It says, knowing that all was now finished. Well, if that's true, then Jesus didn't need to die. If the work was done, then he doesn't need to die. And even in verse 29 that we're gonna look at today, he still is accomplishing more after the statement gets made. So I started to ponder, I did some research, and it's pretty consistent through the commentaries, but I found a quote that I think sums it up, and I think it helps us make kind of an, a beginning point in where we are today. This is from D.A. Carson. He's a really great thinker and theologian. And he says, this cannot be taken so mechanically that there is nothing whatsoever left to fulfill in the divine plan, not even Jesus' death. Rather, Jesus' knowledge that all was now completed is the awareness that all the steps that had brought him to, the, to this point of pain and impending death were in the design of his heavenly Father, and death itself was eminent. Here's why this is such an interesting quote right now. Jesus is exactly where he's supposed to be. He's been alive for 33 years, and for the last three years, he has created ministry so powerful and so profound that it would change the way the world does church forever. He changes spiritual realities, physical realities, relational realities, you name it, he touches it. And all the things that had happened, all the scripture that's been fulfilled so far has brought him to this moment. He's exactly where he's supposed to be, and it isn't fun. It's not cool. He's not sitting back and going, this is what it's like to be the king of the Jews. This is what it's like to be the sovereign savior of the entire world. It's not fun. So ask you a quick question, church. Does this resonate? Have you ever found yourself in a place, because I'll tell you I do on a regular basis, where you're exactly where God wants you and you're exactly where you don't wanna be? Because it's uncomfortable. Because it's not fun because it's, relying, it's causing you to have to rely on God. It's taking your faith and it's stretching it to a breaking point where you can no longer do it on your own and he is needing to be there for you. I call them God gaps and I've told you already, I hate them, but they're good for me. Jesus is in the midst of that moment and what that comment is saying is with everything finished, all the steps that have led him to what he came to do, which is what? He came to die for you and for me, and everything has led him to the point where that is now about to be accomplished. All those steps are done, and he has just a few things left to say. And in the midst of that moment where it's all worked to get him to where he needs to be, he makes one statement and triggers a little domino that I think is really powerful. He says, I thirst. 
One thing I love about our Lord and Savior is he's so saturated in the scriptures. He may have thirsted physically in this moment, and that's what that word means. It means a physical thirst, but it's about to represent so much more. Remember, Jesus knows the Bible so well. They called him rabbi, they called him teacher, but remember, he's the guy that when he got left behind on a family vacation, they found him in the temple. And he knew the scriptures so well, even as a child, that what he was saying to the priests astounded them. He knows his holy text incredibly well, and he's about to do something with it that he knows will fulfill even yet again, the scriptures that are pointing to him. Watch what happens in verse 29. It says this, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Big deal, Russ. He was thirsty. Any man under the Middle Eastern sun having gone through what Jesus went through would have been thirsty. But what they do with that thirst, where they take a hyssop branch, I could preach on this for 20 minutes, but I'm not gonna, because we don't have the time, but a hyssop branch is exactly what the people of Israel used to use to dab in the blood and to anoint the doorways for the Passover. Now, I could do a lot with that, but we're not gonna today. Instead, what I want you to see is that Jesus says, I thirst, knows what's down there, and because he's obedient to what the Father does, watch what happens. The soldiers from Rome were specialists at torment. The only reason that they take this sour wine, which was basically vinegar wine, it is different from the wine that was mixed with myrrh, which he said no to earlier. This is a different deal. This is strictly for refreshment, and what happened was the Roman soldiers who were so good at extending death and making it a terrible experience, the only reason you give Jesus wine at this point is for one reason and one reason only, it is to extend the pain. A human being on a cross is stuck between this need to survive, which we're all sort of wired with, where you're so dehydrated, you're so broken. In fact, what started to happen was the bones would start to get dry and they were easy to break. And you're at that point where your whole body has dried out. So you're calling out for refreshment, but with every sip that you take, you extend the torment that you're in. And what I love about this experience is what the Roman soldiers meant for evil, God the Father is about to use to show just how incredible his son really is. Uh, to, to show you this, I just need to teach you something real quick about rabbinic teaching traditions, meaning this is how Jewish rabbis used to teach, okay? Uh, there's 150 Psalms. Have you guys got those memorized? Was that, is it your on top? Because I don't even, I don't. And so I often have to go back, which Psalm was that, 42, 22, 6, I can't remember. And I have to reference them all the time. But the rabbis were incredible and they knew the Psalms really, really well. And so a teaching method that they would use is they would quote a portion of a Psalm and in doing so, invoke the meaning of the entire Psalm. So already in the crucifixion narrative, you've heard Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's doing is he's drawing attention to Psalm 22. Many people have sat back with Psalm 22 and said, the father had to forsake the son. If you read Psalm 22 all the way, knowing that Jesus was invoking the entire meaning, you'll find it is a psalm of incredible faith and deliverance of God to that, to the individual who's crying out. 
What Jesus is doing here is he is referencing and taking us to Psalm 69. It's an incredible psalm where David is lamenting and is sitting back in the midst of a powerful time of sorrow and sadness and look at what David says in this psalm. It says they gave me poison for food and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. He goes on to say, let their own table before them become a snare and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. David's in pain. David is experiencing this overwhelming onslaught from those who aren't close to him, his enemies. And in the midst of this, David, the king of the Jews, is sitting there and crying out to God. He's in a place of power but doesn't feel powerful. And when he cries out to God, this is what he says. Snare them, trap them, blind them, pour out your indignation on them and be angry at them. He's being honest. It's what we love about David. He pours out his heart to God. He's a man after God's own heart. And he's sitting there in the midst of his pain and is screaming out, hurt my enemies. Make them feel your wrath. I want you to cause them to hurt. One of the things that the cross shows us so clearly is that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than any who ever came before him. We call it typology. It means that every one of the patriarchs, every one of the prophets, every one of the rabbis, the teachers, every Christian leader of importance that has ever come was shown to be lacking and was outdone on the cross. Here's what I want you to see today. David says, snare them, trap them, and blind them. What does Jesus say? Forgive them. I told you that moment that blows me away about the cross is where Jesus is hanging there and while those people gamble for his clothes, he doesn't say snare them, trap them, blind them, give them your indignation and your anger. He says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They are ignorant. They have no idea who I am. They have no idea what I'm here to do. And instead of calling down the legions of angels, he sits down and says, forgive them. One of the many things the cross teaches us is Jesus is better than everything else. And when you have something that's better than everything else, you have found best. You see, Jesus is the better David, who instead of lamenting to God and calling down judgment and punishment on his enemies, he lived a perfect life and died for his enemies. It doesn't stop at David. He's the better Moses who instead of smashing the tablets of the law, bringing anger to his people, he fulfilled the law with his death and brought salvation to his people. He's the better Peter who in the midst of an opportunity to deny, he did not back down, but he walked on to accomplish his final purpose. That's what the cross is partially about. I think someday we're gonna get to heaven and God's gonna go, yes, it was about that and, and, and because so much is accomplished here. But once we've found better, once we've sat back and looked at something that is best, what does it look like for us to embrace this better? There's a reality of life on earth that we have to face in the midst of this. I wanna look at two examples today, and the first one is biblical. 
One of the guys who we all sit back and we go, what a life he led was the Apostle Paul. Jamie's talked about how he, he really likes the book of 2 Corinthians. The Lord is stirring some stuff in our senior pastor's heart. And we're gonna get to preach probably through some stuff over the next couple of years as we look at the book of 2 Corinthians. But I'm gonna give us just a taste of Paul in 2 Corinthians today. Let's look at chapter 12. It says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear what Paul's saying here? Paul has lived a pretty powerful life. He's had a, as radical a, call it my story, U-turn, Damascus Road experience as you could have ever had and has gone from a life of persecuting Christians to a life sold out for Christ. But the moment you are hearing in 2 Corinthians 12 is the moment where he is turning the corner. And he's not just accepting, but he is embracing thirst. He's not sitting back and saying, take it away anymore. He's begged God three times, and the answer he got is my least favorite answer in the world from God. You already have what you need. I don't like that answer in my own life because if I already have what I need and I'm still in pain, I got a problem. What Paul is doing here is he's sitting back and saying, in the midst of this crazy stuff, in the midst of this life that I'm leading, Paul's going to God and saying, I'm thirsty. And when God's reply is, you have what you need, here's what I want you to see. Paul's hearing from the Lord. Hey, guess what? I know you're hurting. I can see that. My grace is sufficient. What Paul has accepted and I love so much is he's going to keep me from getting conceited. What does being conceited look like? I got it. I got this. It's on me and I can handle this. What Paul is saying is because I'm prone to this, the Lord has now given me something that is going to keep me connected to him. It's gonna keep me coming back. I'm thirsty every day. And because of this thirst, I'm really struggling, but I'm really okay. Paul is embracing a thirsty life. I, I gotta ask you, we've all told these stories before. I've got these stories in my own life. Things were tough and the Lord came through and there was a remnant of connectedness from that. But we all tell the same story, don't we? I was closest to God when things were at their worst. As things got better, what happened? I started to drift from God a little bit. Of course I'm closer than I was when I started, but the full dependence on those days where I didn't know how I was gonna get through it, I'm not living that way anymore, I'm doing okay. And we become contented, complacent, and comfortable. And we're not where we started, but we're not where we were. And what Paul is saying is, I now boast. I'm now loving this thirsty life because it keeps me close to him and I am singing the praises 
of the God who makes me thirsty. Anybody ready to pray that prayer this morning? No, because it's hard. What does this look like today? What is a modern example, Rust? He's the apostle Paul. Of course he feels this way. I got a guy who I'm just, I'm kind of obsessed with, right, in, in a holy way, but he's just had such a profound impact on me, and when I heard these stories, I've shared it in different little communion moments and stuff, but I did some research this week, and I intend to round out the thought. Tim Keller, who's a hero to so many of us, about a year ago was in the hospital for a different ailment, and while he was in there on a complete fluke test, they found something, and they came back and they said, bad news, you have pancreatic cancer. We don't have a cure for this. As a matter of fact, we don't even really get it. We've got some treatments that we can kind of keep the symptoms at bay, but what is it? It's a death sentence. Keller goes through this. He's about 70 right now, and we're about a year from that diagnosis. Here's what he said is his greatest fear. When asked, what's your greatest fear about the cancer? This is how Keller responded on behalf of him and his wife, Kathy. I'm not just saying this. Our greatest fear is that if I get a really good diagnosis, a really good response to the cancer, and I really do well, and I really am able to live for a number of more years, we never wanna go back spiritually to where we were before the cancer diagnosis. Now, here's why that hits me. We do, like, look at my life, look at other my stories that we do, things like that. It's like, hey, I was on drugs, my life was a disaster, and now I have Christ, and I don't ever wanna go back to where I was then. That's not Keller. Tim Keller is 70 years old. He planted Redeemer Presbyterian Church in 1989 and had a big impact on the city of New York, a secular hub where very few people wanna hear about Christ. He has inspired me to no end and his books have changed the way I think about God to be both more biblical and more inspirational in the way that I walk them out. He has done this for countless Christians, written countless books, preached sermons that have changed lives the world over and he doesn't wanna go back to there. He doesn't wanna go back to a life that any, any one of us would look at and say, you will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, that is what he doesn't wanna go back to. I gotta think that was a pretty robust walk with Jesus. But Jesus is never done. He has taken Pastor Keller to a place that is so intimate and so close and so dependent that his greatest fear is that he would respond to the cancer well and lose the intimacy. He's willing to give up comfort to have Christ. To me, that is a wow type of walk, and I'm telling you today, I am speaking about it in an aspirational way because I don't understand it. There are so many places in my life where I am still so connected and so addicted to the world that I don't wanna give up my comforts. And when I see men like Pastor Keller or I see the Apostle Paul going, I will boast in my weaknesses, I am embracing a thirsty life. When I hear them saying, I don't care if I die, I simply want to stay close to him, I long for it. But it hurts because I still see what I have to give up and I'm not always in the boat that says, let's go. When we find better than everything else, what have we found? Best, you found best. 
What does it look like? What should we do? Like I said, this is aspirational for me, but what verse do I cling to to go, this is what it looks like? Where does the Bible tell me what I should do when I've found best? I think the Gospel of Matthew tells it so beautifully. Chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at this life as whatever it was before, all the stuff that we had, and when we find Christ to be better than everything else, when we find Christ to be best, we forsake the life we have, we give up everything to have the field. We look at the life that we have here on earth, which by the way, has been leaving us broken and thirsty since we started living it. Ecclesiastes 3 tells us why. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men. You wanna know why you're thirsty? Because we have an eternal thirst inside of us and we keep going to the temporal to try and fill the eternal. Does that equation balance? No. In fact, we are sitting back and saying, I'm thirsty, I'm eternally longing, and guess what? The temporal ain't quenching this thirst. One of two things is gonna happen. Here's my entire sermon packed into one little statement when it comes to thirst. The thirst of the world can break you or make you. If the thirst of the world breaks you, you're gonna continue to cling to the world and be perpetually disappointed. I don't need a show of hands, but I'm gonna bet that statement resonates for a lot of us. When I try to put the temporal in the eternal, it doesn't work. It's a black hole. The temporal just keeps disappearing. But if you let it make you, what does that look like? I don't even know what that looks like, Rustin. Here's my best stab at it. It's letting go of this world and going after Jesus at all costs. It's to embrace the thirst. And instead of being angry at it, instead of being frustrated, instead of constantly saying, but I wanna be quenched and I wanna be quenched and I'm gonna be throw a tantrum until I do, I'm great at this. It is to sit back and to let that thirst drive you to him every day. It's what Crab said to Jamie. What if the thirst is the experience? What if the thirst is the life? What if it's the best part? because it reminds you that you need him. Here's why this is a no-brainer. The moments in our life we hate the most are the moments when we forget how good God is. This is the solution. It's the place where we sit back and we embrace the thirst because it's not killing us, it's not breaking us, it's making us. It is driving us to the one thing that we need the most, but at times we get frustrated because he doesn't respond the way that we want to. He doesn't fix my discomforts. He says, Rustin, my grace is sufficient. This sounds like too much. And I'll be honest, at times it is. My wife has an incredible gift of faith. She trusts the process. She walks with the Lord closely. There's a lot of times in our lives where we're going through stuff and she goes, I'm okay. And I'm like, that makes me mad that you're okay. I'm not okay, and you're okay makes me mad. For some of us today, today might be the day where you finally realize what that feeling inside of you was all the time, all along. 
You're sitting back today and you're going, it's an eternal thirst. And the reason it's never quenched is because I'm not living eternally just yet. I'm gonna be thirsty. That may be the greatest news you've ever heard. You're not broken, you're human. Like, it, there's nothing wrong with you. You have an eternal hope. You don't have an eternal life that you're living just yet. You have eternal life, but you're not living in eternity. Does that make sense? And today is great news because if you truly accept the thirst, it can stop driving you crazy and it can start driving you to Jesus. For some of us, we might already be living with a thorn and today is simply an offer to change our perspective on it. Instead of letting it break you, you let it make you. But for some of us today, today might be that day where this just sounds so ridiculous and so completely unnecessary. I don't blame you. You've heard me. This is one of the most self-effacing sermons I'll ever preach. <laughs> I am not good at this. I just want you to do this for me. If that's you today, I just would ask that you keep this message nearby because if by some chance you ever end up in a spot where the world has let you down for the last time, acceptance of a thirst for the eternal might just save your life. There have been times where it's saved mine. One of the things that I wanna encourage you to do today is regardless of which of those camps or any variety of experiences you're having today, some of you are at a point where something is transacting in you. From the moment these words started to leave my lips, and they're not my words, they're the Lord's, something started to shift. And I would invite you right now, I'm gonna pray in just a minute, and we're gonna have a response time. Here's what I'd invite you to do. Talk to him. The moment I'm done praying, start praying. And tell the Lord exactly what's on your heart. I have been trying to stop a thirsty life. You have been inviting me into one. We've been at odds. I am joining your direction. I'm gonna walk with you into an embrace of the thirsty and know that you are going to continue to walk with me during this thirsty life on earth. I want you, we've designed a time of response that if that's you today, step into it. It ain't gonna happen all at once. It's gonna happen over time where the Lord goes, will you give me this? Will you give me this? Will you give me this? And that process of him continuing to unhook us from the world and us be freer to just go, yeah, I'm thirsty. And he's teaching me how to live thirsty. He's teaching me how to encourage others to boast in my weaknesses so that he can show how strong he really is. If you're in that spot where this is an offensive, violating message to you today, then just do this. During this time of worship, simply invite the Lord into that. He ain't afraid of your frustration. He's got thick skin. If I can be a Christian and walk like this, believe me, you're doing fine. But my invitation is during this time of worship, during this time of response, will you simply just take some time and wherever you're at, give yourself to the Lord and either start walking in this direction or if this is a new revelation and it's frustrating to you, just simply talk him through that. Lord, we very much come to you today in this recognition of the fact that this is a really difficult part of our, of our walk with you. The places where, you t where we come to you and we genuinely say, I don't have enough, and you say, you have enough. Uh, we disagree with you. Uh, we're frustrated with that at times. 
And yet, if we truly move to embrace the thirst of this life, it is what keeps us connected to you. We recognize an ongoing need for you to be our God and us to be your people. And the reality that you wanna be with us as our God is just astounding. So Lord, in the midst of this response time, in the midst of us coming to you and, and working through the frustration, working through the revelation and the joy of what this can be is truly one of the greatest role reversals in our walk. It's what the enemy meant for evil, you will use for good. And it is so challenging for us to see that. So Lord, we give ourselves to you now. Would you hear our hearts? Would you hear our cries? Your people are coming to you with broken hearts and we know that you are the ultimate physician. We pray this in your name, amen.